So making our way through the book of Judges here, uh, we're going to look at chapters 4 and 5, so we're not going to go very far. Um, we're going to look at Deborah and Barak, but um, and no way to really start the story of Gideon and expect to finish it with these two chapters. So we'll, we'll, we'll wait to get into Gideon, which will bring us into chapter 6 next in our next study. So, But this is some good stuff for us. Um, I don't know that these two are the most known individuals in the book of uh, Judges, um, but I think you're going to... We're, you're going to learn, you're going to grow, and you're going to certainly fall in love with Deborah, um, one of the, the greatest women leaders of Israel. Um, and so uh, you put her in the categories of like Miriam or Anna, right? This is, she's an amazing woman. So we're going to uh, continue looking at this. Uh, Israel's in their land um, some 100, you know, 60, 170 years now. And they're in this generational cycle of rebellion. Um, Israel does evil and worships the false gods. God becomes angry and hands Israel over to the enemy nation. Israel cries for help. God raises up judges like Deborah, um, who delivers from the enemy. Israel returns again to the foreign gods. It's that five-step downward degradation cycle that they are caught in, and we're at the beginning of that as we're going through. But the, the one line that we'll come across um, many times in the book of Judges is that everybody is doing what was right in their own eyes. And so we see that here in this, although we're not going to read those exact words. Um, it's exactly what's going on. That is the, the spirit by what is going on. So um, we've already seen one oppressive hand, um, Eglon, king of Moab, uh, be defeated by Ehud, um, and now they, re- they, they, they find favor of the Lord, but here we are. Here we are again, now moving into chapter 4, where they're going to rebel one more time. So let's begin reading there at uh, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. Now, when Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Herosheth Hagiam. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. So introduced to um, this scene and Israel's rebellion results in trouble. It results in oppression. It results in this Jabin king of of Canaan being able to oppress them. And we read here that he is from Hazor, Hazor, and that this is a city that maybe will sound a little familiar to you because in the book of Joshua, it was one of the three cities that was burned by Joshua. And it was the largest of all the cities that they conquered. And it's one of the largest archaeological sites in Israel to this day, actually, um, this site. Um, So it was a profound um, uh, victory that they had in the days of Joshua, but they rebelled. And now it's been rebuilt, and there is a, a new Jabin. Think Pharaoh. Don't think of just first name. It's like, this guy's really, really old. No, it's a different guy, okay? So Jabin is a name that will come up over and over again. Um, you know, just like, uh, 
It would be like a pharaoh in seeing that name again. You don't think the same guy. But if you saw the same name, it's not uncommon that generations of uh, you know, leaders would use the same name being handed down. So these are some of the objections that people say this, the timing's all off, but um, really not an issue. But just a quick little point that I to bring to you. you know, first, it's um, Eglon, king of Moab, that's oppressing them. And now it is uh, Jabin, king of Canaan. When we rebel against the Lord, the Lord will use and has no shortage of tools in his toolbox to discipline us. Have you noticed that? Anybody notice that the Lord can correct us and instruct us in many different ways? So, yeah, it's Jabin and it's a different guy. But just understand that the Lord is going to get the attention of his people. He's going to get my attention. He's going to get your attention. He's going to make certain that when we do evil in his sight or we drift and we walk away, he will bring all types of uh, pressures into our life to bring us back to that place where we acknowledge him. So again, you have uh, the king of Canaan there reigning in, in Hazar um, in, over this site. Um, and just a little bit again about this city. Um, they had walls that um, in, in the days of Joshua that maybe were 30 feet high. Um, and it was a foremost city. It was an international trade route that brought people coming through. So it was very, very wealthy. Um, it was um, near uh, Beit Shan. And um, you would take to go to Damascus, go through Megiddo. So it was a strategic crossroads. And this is one of the reasons why it was so powerful. Um, now, interesting thing about this city so it's a little archaeological point, and we'll move on. A lot of people will look at this and say, well, now, now we believe that Joshua conquered this city because the Bible tells us so, and it fits time-wise. But then we read later that um, in archaeological discoveries will show that it was destroyed again, which um, some will say, look, see, there's these destructions we don't know. But it, it fits the biblical, um, we're going to see that, you know, Hetzor is going to get destroyed again, presumably under Deborah and Barak. So destroyed in the days of Joshua, and then the ash layer and the archaeological evidence correlates to, you know, Judges chapter 4, so that this is being um, destroyed again is not so much a problem. But what they'll do is they'll say that the second destruction that is um, later um, fits the liberal view of Israel coming into the land as some small tribal little a group of people, not a significant number, no major exodus. And they say they more correlate to this ash layer, this destruction there in Hatsar. But the answer biblically is it's both. It's both of them. It's both the, the big destruction in the days of Joshua and this lesser destruction here. In that it was such a major and significant city that it would be rebuilt and rebuilt again is not really and should not surprise us. So just a little bit of information, if you dig into this and begin to read, and say, like, oh, well, wait a minute. It says that, you know, the date was, yeah, two, two burnings that both correlate to the destructions in Joshua and the book of Judges. So um, you can kind of, if that's your thing, you can, you can dig into that just a little bit. Look at verse 4 and 5. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. So she's a prophetess and she's a judge. 
Right? So she has, she has both of these things going on. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. <clears throat> and then you go back into the wilderness wanderings and think about how all these people were coming and wanting to sit with Moses. And then he appointed 70 men that would oversee this business and that they would, all the lesser issues would come to them. And then eventually, if there was a big issue that he was not able to deal with, then they would bring it to Moses. But now here we are, and we have Deborah the prophetess, and we have her as the judge over Israel. And knowing the patriarchal leadership model in Scripture, and even what I just said about Moses and the 70 men, it, it becomes quite noticeable. It immediately jumps out Say, wait a minute. This, this is not something we've read before in the Scriptures. And um, her leadership in the nation, um, you, the text is not implicit on this. So this is, you're going to have to put whatever weight you want it. I would say the fact that they have done evil on the side of the Lord and that there is no model that God had established is indicative of um, not her, okay, because she's the one that um, is spiritually minded, but it's indicative of how far the nation had fallen, that there was not those leaders that God had designed. It is God's design to have men over their homes and taking the spiritual leadership of the congregation, the church of the Lord. This is what you find in Scripture. I realize people differ in their opinions. Um, and there are two camps, the egalitarian camp that says that you know women have just as much biblical authority to lead and pastor an elder, um, a church, as would the complementarian view, which would say that it is a male leadership um, emphasis in Scripture. I agree with the complementarian view because, as you'll see in Scripture, that is what you read and that is what you see. You don't see the other. Um, and, um, you know, I think there are a lot of attempts that people make to say, no, look at this woman or look at this woman. And see, she's a leader. Well, she certainly, we can look to women like Phoebe um, in Scripture. Um, we can think of uh, Priscilla and Aquila, that you know, you know, dynamic ministering couple, married couple that did um, great works. We think of Anna. We think of a lot of amazing women. Um, but what Scripture teaches us is that there's leadership resides there. Now, some will look at this and they immediately say, well, this is just, you know, you know maybe, uh, male patriarchal, um, you know, dominance. And yet, I think you got to be really careful before you say something like that. Because you might want to re actually read the scriptures before you draw a conclusion. Because what you might end up finding is that you're pointing your finger, not at me, but at God. And what he has laid out. And so the question is, well, why would he do this? Well, Listen, that he has, and that's the model, I think is very clear. But you can ask the Lord when you get to heaven, and you can find out exactly why. But in his wisdom, in his design, this is what he's done. So if we were to say, well, no, you know, women can lead the church just like Deborah was leading the nation, then, then what I would want to ask you is, well, then should women lead their homes the same? Because whatever reason you could give for why a woman should lead the church. I don't mean serve and be used of the Lord. Um, 
That's, I don't want to be a part of a church that doesn't do that. Okay, Does anybody want to be a part of a church where women are not using their spiritual gifts and serving? I don't. That is not a, a scene I want to be a part of. I want to see the, the full display of gifts and people in the church serving. But if you come to the conclusion that, well, she shouldn't um, um, lead the family, but she should lead the church, I, I just it seems so inconsistent to me that you would, you would have that view. So people say, well, here are the responses that often come. Well, you see, um, the Apostle Paul was a male chauvinist. Again, you, you, you walk down that road and you begin to do that, you're going to have some real difficulty with other things that he said too. And now you're beginning to undermine what he said. So in Scripture, he's writing things from a male chauvinistic point of view. That's so problematic on so many different levels. Um, and so I, I wouldn't accept that idea. Well, you know, to say that men are better than women is just not right. Okay, the Bible never says that. That's what, you know, you know, ungodly men may want to force or ungodly cultures may want to force, but that's not what the Bible says and it's certainly not what I'm saying either. So what is it? Well, is, is, you know, women can be, do, do a better job. Okay, let's say that women can do a better job 100% of the time. I won't argue with you. Does it change what the Word of God says? And this idea, well, it just puts women in this inferior position. Be careful what you, again, your, your logic and your thinking here is so important. Because if you say if somebody is in submission and to somebody else that they are inferior in worth and value and essence, then what do you do with Jesus who was in submission to the Father? So I, I think a lot of the things that are often thrown out as to why the idea that I'm, I'm putting forth, and I believe the Bible does, should be rejected, it really becomes super problematic. So we don't let culture, we don't let our feelings and our emotions, our bad experiences, they do not get to take the place of Scripture. And so these are the, the, some of the reasons. And uh, you might want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11 on this point, but let me give you one verse, 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 through 14. And I do not permit, permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. I realize that's not a, a favorite verse of um, people to, to quote. It's probably not in your little you know, promise box, you know, little bread box there. It's probably not a, uh, it's probably not a, a post-it note. I've got to memorize this one. Um, a, I imagine not. But when Paul was talking about the order of the church, he says this is how it's going to function. That there's going to be men that are going to lead, and they're the ones that are going to have authority. So would um, we have... <laughs> little tongue-in-cheek here. Um, would we have male, I mean female elders at Calvary Chapel Lynchburg? Well, one of the requirements for an elder is that he be the husband of one wife. I don't think any woman can fulfill that role. So, so no, I, I think it's, it's just, it's clear throughout Scripture that this is it. And uh, again, can women teach? Yes. Can they have authority over men and teach? Well, that's not God's ideal. Does it happen sometimes? It does. It does happen. I think we're seeing this here with, um, 
with Deborah. I think in, inside the church you can even see that. Over in Nepal, there was a time when um, the, the leadership, the male leadership, um, was going overseas, and they were leaving the church left and right. And there was, a, um, there was hardly a, even any men in the church. I'm talking about like 10 years ago, five years ago. And so um, the women were having to step up and, and do this. And so the question was, I, can the women come to the pastor's conferences that we were having? And um, so I got that explanation. I'm like, so they're the ones that are actually taking care of the church because there's no male leadership there? Pretty much, or the male leadership that's there, you really wouldn't want them leading it. It's like, yeah, of course they can come. We will build them up, and we will strengthen their hands, and we will help them do everything they can. And when the, those leaders have been raised up, we would encourage them to, to hand that back over. So I think you gotta, you know, I think you got to handle this with wisdom and care. you got to understand the circumstances that are going on. But that is the plan and the will of the Lord. Um, some will use this passage in 1 Timothy that I just quoted to say, well, Paul is correcting obnoxious women that are pushing in and trying to take authority um, and just uh, ripping um, the, the church apart. And so this prohibition against women is not all women, but it's obnoxious women. But uh, I think I'll just challenge you to go read the text and see if you find that. Um, so... So this is an interesting thing when we talk about Deborah. She's a prophetess, and she's a judge over Israel. We know the model in Israel was male um, uh, leadership. And so we see her. I'm going to say, can't say it definitively, but I'm going to say that is because it's a, it's a reflection of where the, the nation had gone. Um, but she's a, she is a prophetess. Um, Miriam. The sister of Moses was a prophetess. Anna, one of the most amazing and curious ladies of the New Testament that we just don't get enough information on, right? She was a prophetess. Uh, the, the daughters of Philip, um, four of them, they all prophesied. And they walked in this gifting. So what we're talking about here, to be clear, is an office of leadership not a gifting given by the Lord. And I hope you can maybe draw the distinction between these two, two things. There's giftings. Can women teach? Yeah, there's some amazing women teachers. Can, can they prophesy? Yes. Can they, can they serve in, in almost every aspect of gifting as, as a man? I can't think of really of one where they can't, but when it comes to the office that they will have inside the church or the role of leadership, that's where the distinction comes in. So um, hopefully that, that is helpful. You can think on it. You can ponder and uh, work on through it. But she, she steps up, and she is the woman that everybody in the nation knows that's the lady to talk to. This is the woman who's in touch with the Lord. You're going to see this very, very clearly in just a moment with Barak. I mean, it's like, no, this lady is connected with Jesus. I don't want to hear what she has to say. And that obviously would have led to her being that effective judge in more of that civil role um, in the country too. All right, so look at verses 6 and 7. It says, Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, 
from Kadesh and Nephtali and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun. And against you, I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon. And I will deliver him into your hand. So she steps up. She's not afraid to, to walk out the role she's in. I mean, she's very clear. She gives a command and she gives a promise of the Lord. And Barak was to lead this military campaign that was going to bring victory after 20 years, two decades of being oppressed. What a joy and a privilege it is to be called into the work of the Lord. What a blessing it is when the Lord puts his hand upon us and he calls us into that role of ministering to other people and helping them to be liberated from the darkness or maybe from their own evil doings. And the Lord puts you into that place joy and privilege that we get called into the purposes of the Lord. Here's a question I want you to ponder. When you hear the call of the Lord, when you hear this type of, of, of language that says, go and deploy the troops, you know, get to work, do you think blessing or do you think burden? When you hear the call for ministry, do you think blessing or do you think burden? When you hear that, do you think, why not somebody else? Or you're like, I can't believe it's me. And if it's, why can't it be somebody else? I think you need to just, you need to get alone with Jesus. And you need to find out, why is it that my heart towards serving this great king who died for me and wants me to be zealous for good works, why is it that I find it to be more of a burden than I find it to be a blessing? So she says, you're going to war. And in verse 8 through 10, Barak agrees with conditions. Okay. He's like, okay, but he's going to put a stipulation in there. And Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. I mean, again, you, you're, you're seeing how well regarded and esteemed um, Deborah was. It's kind of like, hey, I know you know the voice of the Lord. I'm not so sure about me. <laughs> um, but he's given a, a very simple command with a very straightforward uh, promise. So she said, I'll surely go with you. Nevertheless, there'll be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak, Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command. And Deborah went up with him. So he's going to go, but only if she's there. He's willing, but she's, he, he would rather trust in the spirit-filled woman than, in trust in the, than to trust in the, the word of an invisible God. And that suddenly sounds really close to home, doesn't it? All of a sudden, we begin to think, you know what? I find it easier I find it easier to trust in the man or the woman or the group of people that I can see than in the word of the Lord whom I can't see. That's why we're told to walk by faith, not by sight. And I mean, you see, you see the air. Now listen, Barak is going gonna, is gonna to be used to the Lord. Um, he's going to do it. But you see the shortcoming. How sad it must be to the Lord when we put more 
confidence in imperfect humans than in our perfect loving creator who redeemed us and saved us. He is far more trustworthy. Um, I love this story that Pastor Chuck um, used to tell because uh, about trusting in man versus trusting in the Lord. And I, I'm just going to recite it. You've heard me. Maybe you've heard him give it. You've been around and you've heard me certainly share it before. But um, it was very early on in the ministry and they were um, a young family. They didn't have the money that... Um, you know, to take care of things, and they're worrying about bills. I don't remember what bill it was in groceries and all. But he said he was sitting in his uh, in his house, just praying and asking the Lord, and um, and about this financial need. And he says, "I sat there because the Lord just said, Chuck, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to take care of this for you. You know, I'm going to provide." He's like, "Oh, thank you, Lord. You're so good. You're so kind." And he says, "About that time, the phone rang." And he got on the phone, and I think it was a relative, I think it was an uncle, and said, hey, Chuck, um, you're on my heart. And the Lord uh, put it on my heart <clears throat> that I was to write out a check for, put the number in there, I don't remember what it was, let's just say 100 bucks. I'm supposed to send you a check for $100 um, that you're in need. So listen, I'm putting the check in the mail tomorrow, you'll get it in a couple of days. Um, just uh, the Lord laid it on my heart. He's like, wow, thank you, that is so perfect. And he said, he hung up the phone, he went into the kitchen, he got Kay, and started dancing with her all around the kitchen. The Lord is so good. He's going to provide. He's going to do all this. This is amazing. And, and he was so excited and just singing the praises of the Lord. And um, so he went back into his chair and sat down. And as he sat there, the Lord said, you didn't respond that way when I said I was going to give you the money. You didn't get up and dance with Kay when I said it. Now, how do you know your uncle's going to do it? It's like, oh, come on, Lord. My uncle's a trustworthy man. He, you can count on him if he says he can do it. He goes, am I any less trustworthy than your uncle? And see, we can easily put our eyes upon the words and the promises of people. And God uses people, right? Amen? He uses them. We, and we, we should rejoice at the work of the Lord through people. But I think we all get the lesson here. That we can be so quick to trust in what we can see that is really, if it's man, it's, a man can do the right thing and want to do the right thing, but the check could get lost in the mail, right? The check could bounce. All of these things could happen, but you know what? The Lord never bounces checks. Nothing ever gets lost when the Lord does it. So Barak is in this place of rather than trusting in the word of the Lord and being obedient, he says, all right, I'll do it, but. And because of that stipulation, um, Deborah responds, all right, but you're not going to get the glory for this. And, I mean, to the credit of, of Barak, he's like, well, he's going to go. That's not what he's into. He's not trying to build a name for himself. So, you know, listen, he's stepping up. He's doing what the Lord wants. But we, we, we can say this is not a grievous error, but this is certainly one area that um, the Lord changed the plan. He says, you're going to, Cicero is going to be delivered into your hand. Okay, if you go, well, then it's not going to be to you. The Lord changes his mind about how the victory is going to come. Now, if you've read this story before, you know. But if you've never read this story before, you're thinking right now, oh, Deborah is going to get the credit. But she's not the one that's going to kill Sisera. We'll find out this interesting twist that's going to take place in the story. So let's go ahead and look at verse 11. It says, Now Heber the Kenite, 
of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, so Jethro, right, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zanaim, which is beside Kedesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Herosheth Hagiam to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and his army with the edge of the sword before Barak, and Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. Verse 16, But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth Hagiam, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So let's stop right there. So got a, a slide to put up there. This is Mount Tabor. So Mount Tabor is the place where that's where Barak was on top of. Now, it's down in the valley that the battle is going to be fought. It's the river Kishon kind of runs through this. This is the Jezreel Valley. Uh, the valley of uh, Megiddo is in the Jezreel Valley. Okay. So this is, if you are thinking about this is where the, the last great battle, the Battle of Armageddon is going to take place. It's in this valley. And that would be the northern side of that valley, so Mount Tabor. And um, this is where he is. Um, he finds out he ends up coming down. <clears throat> now the next um, uh, slide is a, a, just a map of the battlefield. Some of these cities that we've been talking about are there. Uh, you know, you have Zebulon and Nephtali coming together. Mount Tabor is that triangle um, marker, which would be to the you know, south of uh, the Sea of Galilee, Hetzar's up to the north. Um, so you get, you get a sense of the, the battlefield and, and where they're coming from. It's there that he ends up having this amazing victory over uh, Sisera. But in verse 15, we are told that Sisera abandoned his chariot and ran. Who does that? Why would you do that? And we, we don't know in chapter 4 but what we're going to find out in chapter 5 is chariots don't go very fast in mud. So they had 900 chariots of iron. So these are like, you know, they were, they were intimidating. But if they're all stuck in the mud, what do they do for you? Nothing. So um, with one good rainstorm, the Lord neutralizes, and probably you could say more than neutralizes, um, overturns the army because they had a battle plan to be riding these things and they weren't planning for you know the the combat on foot so th so this is why why we see that he gets out as a thunderstorm that they're going to give praise uh, to the lord for so true to the promise of the lord the canaanite army is defeated except for sisera he's on the run so let's read about that verse 17 However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazar, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with the blanket. Then he said to her, Give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. 
So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you, and says, is there a man here, you shall say no. Then Jael Heber's wife took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the the peg into his temple and it went down into the ground for he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. So this is the woman that's going to kill Sisera. You you don't see it coming, do you? You think, oh, it's Deborah. It's going to be Deborah. But it's not Deborah. It's actually this non um, Israelite woman, which I think is going to be an interesting contrast as we get into chapter five with some of the other uh, uh, you know, men of Israel. So she ends up doing this. Verse uh, 22 it says, And when Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, uh, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with the peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So there's a few more battles that we're going to have to uh, transpire, but this is where you know everything turned, where God raised up the judge, Deborah, to give them this amazing victory. So, again, Moses' father-in-law, this is who the Kenites are. And it's hard to read, and I'm just going to insert this into your thoughts. I think it's hard to read um, this account, especially knowing the next chapter, without feeling a, a, a rebuke that's just beneath the surface. It's just beneath the surface. Not taking anything away from Deborah, not taking anything away from Jael. They're both going to be uh, given you know, praise for what they did. But it's, again, it's going to be a lack of male leadership. That it's going to be a real problem. And what we're going to read is that some tribes don't even want to go out and fight. Men in Israel don't want to go fight. And yet a non-Israelite woman deals with the problem. And so there's this, there's this little rebuke that's just kind of riding right beneath the surface so let's move into chapter 5. And this is a song or a poem of praise, right? It's very typical of the day. Um, and there are many other examples of this outside of even Scripture of um, victory battles, a victory hymn that has been written. So it's a song of praise. Look at verse 1. Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying, When the leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. And that had been the problem. So you can kind of see this, 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 the lack of leadership, right? You see the lack of leadership because she, Deborah, is saying, man, it's good when leaders lead. It's good when, when people who are called to be at the front do the job they're supposed to do. And then also, when they lead, that other people come along and willingly engage in the work that God has led that man or that woman into. And it takes both, right? I love the account of Jonathan and his armor bearer when he says, hey, let's, let's go up there, just me and you. Let's go fight the Philistines. It may be that God will deliver them into our hands. He can save, you know, he doesn't need many. He can do it with a few. And his armor bearer says, do all that is in your heart. I am with you. You have a leader and Jonathan, not his dad, because his dad is just hanging out, right? 
driving Jonathan nuts. And then you have a servant, an armor bearer that says, listen, if you're willing to take a step of faith, I'm willing to go with you. So she sees this. She sees a man that was willing to step up. He had to be exhorted. Um, But when the exhortation came, he stepped up and he did exactly what he was supposed to do. Every family and every church needs godly leaders to step up and follow the direction of the Lord and then the people to willingly follow that leadership. That's how God has, has historically worked. I mean, read the book of Acts. Read through the New Testament. Read the Old Testament. And this is how the Lord works. So she's, she's excited. She's worshiping the Lord because finally we've got a leader here, a man that's willing to lead this country. Um, verses 3 through 5 it's just a, you hear the praise. It says, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, so recalling other events of their history, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. Here's your water element, right? The clouds also poured water and the mountains gushed before the Lord. This Sinai before the Lord God of Israel. And um, this is, is poetry, so sometimes it's very hard to nail this down. But uh, it, to me, it seems like the reference to this Sinai is Mount Tabor. There's a mountain of the Lord. The Lord shows up in presence, and the clouds are pouring out. It's turning into you know, a, a good old gully washer that's going to get all of these other um, chariots stuck so that they can't move. And, and this is all the Lord needs. It's like, oh, there's 900 chariots. All right, do the calculations. You know, what's it going to take? How many men to take out every single chariot? And how many are we going to lose? Okay, all right, well, we're going to need a lot of guys. All right, and so do we have any horses? We don't have enough horses. Do we have anything? We don't have, well, I don't know if we're going to win this victory. Well, the Lord told us to go. Oh, I don't know how it's going to happen. And, and yet, can you imagine sitting around in that meeting and saying, well, what we need is a good thunderstorm. They don't, they don't think that. You don't hear that. But, but the Lord's up there going, guys, all you need is a good thunderstorm. All you need is a good thunderstorm. And that huge problem that is in front of you is going to become a huge liability for your enemy. So um, you just got to love the way the Lord works. Verse 6. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, and didn't we, we talked about him over there, and just turn back a page to chapter 3, verse 31. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. All right, so just referencing back to him. So so in the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted, and the travelers walked along the byways. Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel. Until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. They chose new gods. That's what Israel did, right? They cast off Yahweh. Then there was war in the gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. So they, here's the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin. You know, say, like, let's go after these other gods. Let's begin to worship them. We'll really fit in nicely. But you don't fit in nicely. You actually become oppressed. And you begin to be attacked. And the wonderful village life that you used to have, 
These small little villages now became a liability and they would have had to move out of these villages and probably into these better protected cities. And so the homeland was no longer, that it would have been handed down in the days of Joshua. They were having to leave that. And, you know, they weren't taking the main roads. They were walking these, you know, the goat trails on the backside of the mountain and down through the valleys because they don't want to be spotted because they were being oppressed. Sin promises liberty. Sin promises pleasure. But what we see in the end is that it robs of life, it brings despair, and it fills people's life with fear. Do you know that fear is a product of sin? We live in a very fearful country. And what I mean by that is there are many people whose lives are just marked with fear. But there's perfect peace for those whose mind has stayed upon the Lord. And so, you know, when you begin to walk in sin and your life begins to be marked by fear, well, this is nothing new. This goes, I mean, goes back to the days of Deborah. So when you choose a new God, fear dominates your life. Family life gets altered. It gets changed. And she says, yeah, when you did this, it didn't work out very well. And she goes, and then the Lord finally used me and rose uh, and lifted me up to be a mother to Israel, to actually care for this country. And indeed, we were reading and seeing exactly how that happened. Verses 9 through 11. My heart is with the rulers of Israel who offered themselves willingly with the people. Bless the Lord. Speak you who ride on white donkeys, who sit in judges' attire, and who walk along the road, far from the noise of the archers among the watering places, There they shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts of his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord shall go down to the gates. So I think this, again, it's a difficult passage. And there's some different ideas, but I'm just going to tell you where I think what we're reading about is that she's talking about those who were willing to fight. Obviously, that's very clear there in verse 9. You know, they willingly offer themselves to the Lord. And then she talks about people that are judges, that are the rich people riding the donkeys, and then just the common person. And so for those that engaged in the battle, we're going to read about those who didn't in just a moment. But for those that engaged, it was, it was from every class. It was from everybody put their hand to the plow. In this moment, in this battle, the 10,000 that came, evidently it was the common man it was the, you know, the judge, and it was the person on the donkey. Everybody engaged in the work of the Lord. And, I, and I, I love this thought, and you've heard me probably say this before too, but you know, the least of the things in the kingdom of God is way above our pay grade. Whatever you would, and I think we should be very careful in this, but I think you'll understand where I'm going with it. If you conceive of a work or a, a task or a ministry inside the kingdom of God and say, well, that would be the least of the things to do. It's still 10 times above your, your pay grade and you are not qualified for it. Which means there should be nothing that any of us are unwilling to touch or to do. Because we all should be willing to engage. And Deborah's like, man, this just bless the Lord. Bless Yahweh. That people stood up and they offered themselves willingly. And I just, again, I want to put that question before you. Are you one who has offered yourself willingly with the people? Do you put your hand, is it quick to go to the plow, or is it, I don't have time. Let somebody else do it. It doesn't 
really have as much many skills and and let, let other people do that type of stuff. I've got more important things I need to do. And if that is a mentality and you're unwilling to put your hands upon the things of the kingdom and put it more upon the things of this world, I'm just going to say it. You're deceived. Your, your priorities are upside down. And when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and you see him, you're going to long for the ideas to put your hands upon the least of the things of the kingdom in his name. But for Deborah, they had seen it. She had seen people unwilling to, to step up, right? There, nobody was willing to do it. Again, going back to verse 2, when leaders lead in Israel, finally somebody's doing this. So she's excited that people are putting their hands to the plow and they are throwing off this enemy. So verses 9 through 11, those who fought. Um, and, then, and then she just talks about how they're talking about all the good things that the Lord has done there in verse 11. They will recount the righteous acts of Yahweh, the righteous acts for his villagers in Israel. And so now they're going back to the gates, right? The people of the Lord shall go down to the gates. They're going to city and village life is going to return. But I think of the, the teams that come back from mission trips or we, you have you know, the ministry team that you serve on, maybe in children's ministry or the women's ministry or men's ministry or youth. Or, there's so many areas in which you can serve or you, you, you engage in a prayer ministry and you begin to talk about the righteous acts of God. Look what the Lord did. Look how he stepped up. Look what he did there. Look what he did here. You can read in the book of Acts when the, uh, uh, Paul comes back. They come to Antioch and um, they begin to tell over and over and over again is it the, the force of the language about all the things that God had done on the mission field. And, and this is a similar kind of moment. They're excited. Do you have stories of the work of the Lord? of the righteous acts of God that you've been able to engage in. Well, no, not really. I just don't have the time for it. You're missing out. You are missing out. Let's keep reading. In verses uh, 12 through 18, and here's the the place where we really see those that got involved and those that don't. She's going to name them, right? Verse 12. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, sing a song, arise, Barak, and lead your captives away, O son of Abinoam. Then the survivors came down, the people against the nobles, the Lord came down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim were those whose roots were in Amalek. After you, Benjamin, with your peoples, from Macher, so like a, a clan of, um, of, of uh, Manasseh, or ben, uh, Benjamin, um, came down. And from Zebulon, those who bear the recruiter's staff. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah, as Issachar was with Barak, sent into the valley under his command. Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the pipings of the flock, of the flocks? The division of Reuben have great searchings of heart. So she names these tribes that were willing to go, and she, Ephraim, Macher, that's the clan of Manasseh, Zebulun, Issachar. These all engage, but then she just calls out Reuben. What's wrong with you? You sat around and you did nothing. You talked about it a lot. You had a lot of great ideas. You, I mean, you, you had some of the deepest, most incredible philosophical conversations in your heart about engaging in the battle, and yet you did nothing. Why? Why didn't you do that? Why didn't you get involved? 
Um, verse 17, Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. So think of Gad on the other side of the Jordan. And why did Dan remain on ships? Asher continued at the seashore and stayed in his inlets. Zebulun is a people who jeopardized their lives to the point of death. Naphtali also on the heights of the battlefield. So she is not giving anybody. And in, you know, in honor culture, and some of you are from that, some of you may be ministered in honor cultures, this is no small deal. I mean, we in the West may think, ah, whatever, somebody said something nasty. But to be called out by a, this woman that you were unwilling to engage in the work of the Lord, it would have had profound impact. We are not told what it was, but if, if we find out later sometime that some of these were actually, there were consequences within the community of Israel, it wouldn't be a surprise. So they were, they were called out. You have women that stood up. You had foreigners that stood up. You had these tribes that stood up, but then you have those that were unwilling to. And so she just rebukes them. In verse 19, it says, Then kings came and fought. The kings of Canaan fought in Ta'anak by the waters of Megiddo. They took no spoils of silver. They fought from heavens. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon, so this river, right, is filled with water because of the thunderstorms, swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon, O oh my soul, march on in strength. Verse 22, then the horse's hooves pounded, the galloping, galloping of his steeds. So, again, mud and chariots, that, that's what happens. That's how we, we, we can understand as you get the reference to the clouds and the rain and the Kaishan River overflowing. That's why Sisera got off and ran, because his chariot was completely useless to him. Now, verse 23, curse Meraz, said the said the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants bitterly because they did not come to the help of Deborah. Look at it. Look at verse 23. What does it say? Because they did not come to the help of Barak. They didn't come to the help of Jael. No, they didn't come to the help of Yahweh. Now, what kind of help do we offer the Lord, really? I mean, it's like your 10-year-old son that's learning to mow the yard. That's the kind of help that they offer. It's not helpful, but... You're hopeful, you know, what's going to come. Later it'll be helpful. But, you know, we're kids. And yet the Lord allows us to engage in his work. But I find it so amazing that they're rebuked because they didn't come and help the Lord. To help, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. The Lord was allowing this city, this village, to engage. And they're like, not interested. We're not interested in that battle. It looks dangerous. It looks bloody. We don't want to stir up trouble. We have other things that we're involved with. It's raining outside. It's not a good day. You know, whatever they said, they're rebuked, and they're rebuked for not helping the Lord. Again, you, you feel the theme that just keeps coming up in all of this, but you know, it's like, well, I just don't have time to serve the church. No, what you're really saying is you don't have time to serve who? You don't have time to serve the Lord. You don't have time to help your helper. 
the ultimate helper. And I just would warn you as a brother and a pastor is to make certain that that never is the case. You do the work of the Lord that he has called you to do. And when he has called you into it, you do it with all that you have until he tells you to stop doing that. Verse 24, most blessed among women is Jael. So here's the glory going to her, right? The wife of Heber the Kenite, blessed is she among women in tents. He asked for water, or yeah, water. She gave him milk. She brought out a cream in a lordly bowl. It's like, all right, here you go. She's no dummy. This guy's tired. He's been running. He's going to drink this milk. And we know what happens when you drink a warm, you know, lordly bowl of milk. You're going to sleep. And she was setting him up. She stretched out her hand to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's hammer. She pounded Sisera. She pierced his head. She split and struck through his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell. He lay still. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. So, yeah, just a simple recounting of, of, of that work. In verse 28 and um, down to verse 30. Now we're going to hear Sisera's mother. So, all right, this is interesting, right? We have Deborah. When you're reading through this, it's kind of like, oh, you got a woman here. Oh, we have another woman, JL. Oh, we have another woman now. And it's the mother of Sisera. This is not a good lady. The mother of Sisera looked through the window and cried out through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarries the clatter of his chariots? Her wisest ladies answered her. Yes, she answered herself. Are they not finding and dividing spoil? Every man a girl or two. So just fulfilling their lust, right? Out on the, in this, uh, this battle. For Sisera, plunder of dyed garments, plunder of garments, embroidered and dyed. Two pieces of dyed embroidery for the neck of the looter. So Sisera's not coming home. He's dead. Because God raises up two ladies. Isn't it interesting? Can you see the irony? Oh, he's getting, he's getting a couple ladies out on the battlefield. And the Lord's like, no, a couple ladies got him. They took him out. He had plans to, to do harm. And yet the Lord's like, no, I think I'm going to raise up two ladies with a, with a, a prophecy and some, <laughs> a little bit of nastiness. And they're going to take care of this guy. And so there she is. It's, just, it's kind of just, I don't, I don't know how much to put on that, but it is interesting just to consider that um, the Lord is it's just, it's a rebuke. You can get a sense of the kind of oppression that they had been under for 20 years. It's not pretty. It isn't just inconvenience. They're not just paying more taxes. It's, it's not a good scene. So last verse. Thus, let all our enemies perish, O Lord. But let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. So the land had rest for 40 years. And then we're going to get into <clears throat> the Midianites coming in. We'll be able to read all about Gideon. And that's probably one of the, you know, the better known stories, if even the Old Testament. So as we, we wrap this up, just a couple of lessons to, to bring again to your mind. Know the Lord is looking for those who will step up into the purposes of God. Be it Deborah, Barak, Jael, the Lord is looking to raise up people. 
He's wanting people that are willing to step out and say, I will do it. I will lead. I will follow that leader. I will be that man. I will be that woman. We need to be careful that we don't put greater faith in people with good intentions that can fail than a God who promises and never fails. That's one that certainly I'm going to take away from from our study here. And we all have a place to step into the work, right? We don't want to be the cursed little city of Moreau's that you know, had other things that wanted to do. We were too busy. We don't want to be like Reuben that, man, we could talk all about the gr- great ponderings of heart. I mean, we had a battle plan. You should have heard our battle plan as we sat around and talked. Yeah, but you didn't do anything. You didn't do anything. It doesn't help. Oh, you know, we're on the ships. That's an excuse. You're to be involved in this. And so we want to be those that are stepping into the work of the Lord and not making excuses for not engaging in the work of the Lord. So let's just go ahead and let's wrap this up. Let's close in prayer. Let's ask the Lord to search our hearts here. Father, we thank you that you hear us, you see us. And Lord, you know this evening what you have placed in all of our hearts and minds. You know the gifts that you've given. You know the things you want us to to wrap our hands around. The leaders that need to step up and lead in their homes. The leaders that need to step up and lead inside the church. Those that need to follow those that are stepping up. Lord, you have a plan for your church to seek first the kingdom of God and to to do your work. And we want to put our hands upon it. And Lord, that we, we could even... We wouldn't say it if we otherwise. Who are we to help you, Lord? But yet this is what your, your word says, is that we do get to help you, that you include us in these things. And we're honored and we're privileged. We are blessed. We are not burdened. We are not overwhelmed. And we don't run from these things, Lord. We want to lean right into them. Lord, I imagine as we prayed and talked through this passage, there are some of us that are, in that place where we need to see you show up. We need to see your hand of deliverance. I pray you would speak to us. I pray that you would give us faith to trust in you and to not only believe it, but actually get excited about your promise of deliverance, your promise of provision. You're faithful in all your ways. Just give you a moment to respond. Maybe you just need to say, Lord, Lord, I'm enough. I'm my excuses are nauseating even to me. I'm, I'm done not doing what you've called me to do and to serve. Maybe you need to just respond to the Lord and say, Lord, here I am. You know, use me. I present myself to you. I don't know what you want to do, but Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Maybe you need provision. Maybe you need the Lord to show up in great strength and power. Ask him. Ask him to show up in your life. Amen.